Okay, uh, yeah, yesterday we were talking about these two people. Yeah, one was uh, Gower and the other was Langland, right? And uh, that's what Hudson is talking about. And I think what is important is uh, when we're talking about Gower and we're talking about, uh, yeah, so uh, first of all, he's talked about the general characteristics of Chaucer's poetry, right? And he's talked about the Canterbury Tales, right? And the idea is, uh, by and large, as far as uh, we are talking about uh, Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, I'm sure that you've read them very closely as you've studied the text, right? And uh, he gives you a whole range of the different kinds of people from uh, the top to the bottom when you have the Canterbury Tales, right? And it's a kind of a historical record at one level, right? But again, what is interesting about the Canterbury Tales, it's about its organization, yeah? And the idea maybe is borrowed from Bekesho, maybe it's borrowed from somebody else, but it gets its own kind of English life when Chaucer writes it down, yeah? Yesterday we talked about the Italian self and the French self of Chaucer, right? And uh, these are important things because what happens when we're talking about Chaucer is, or we're talking about any poet, how does the poet get influenced by another culture, by another literature, by another way of thinking, right? And how is that incorporated into what you call uh, the writing of a particular poet, right? So when we're talking about the idea of uh, the writing of poets, right, uh, or a novelist, etc., we are talking about how do these novelists get influenced by other people, right? So uh, today we talk about maybe how does uh, Proust and Joyce and Eliot in the 20th century get influenced by a philosopher called Bergson, right? Or how does a person like uh, Henry James get influenced by his brother William James, who's a kind of a psychologist, right? Yeah, or we also talk about uh, F.H. Bradley, who's a philosopher, and talks about appearance and reality, and we find that uh, A.C. Bradley, who's his brother, actually works on Shakespeare and talks about that, right? Now, uh, so that's a critic, but the other is how do writers get influenced by thinkers or are they thinking before their time? All those kind of questions come up today, right? Yeah, and one of the bad things about some uh, kinds of criticism of poets and of writers is that they've been influenced by so-and-so, right? Yeah, so uh, one of the big problems over here is we're talking about many, many influences, right? Yeah, so when we talk about Gandhi, and we said, well, Gandhi was influenced by this, 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 right? How many influences did he have? We can't actually put them down and say, these are the influences, right? Yeah, and the question is, when you talk about Gandhi, 
and you say, well, we actually have a record of all the books that he borrowed in year out of jail, right? And uh, we presume that he read all those books, right? And if that is true, and uh, that he, he read all these books, then uh, that means uh, that we have uh, to think about what happens to each of the writers and how do they influence his thought, right? Yeah. So when you talk about the Italian phase, the French phase, and the English phase, right? To a man like Chaucer, what is important is that we actually say, well, uh, the culture has worked on him, right? And yesterday we talked about the Latin kind of uh, understanding, the 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 Latin. I'm sorry. What what was it? Uh, the Latin Quarter, right? Yeah. So Paris is a place where different kinds of writers meet the writers, the poets, the artists, the musicians, right? And anybody who wants or pretends to be an artist uh, meet and you have a discussion, right? And what happens over there is that's a great kind of an exchange which takes place, which influences both people on both sides, right? Yeah, so when we talk about the arts, we're not trying to keep out certain kind of influences. You can't, right? Yeah, and uh, that's of course, uh, our stupid government is trying to do that. It's trying to erase history. It's trying to erase uh, languages, the cultures which are associated with languages, right? Yeah, uh, let them try to get rid of chilies and potatoes, right? Yeah, if you want to say that these are grown in India, right? Chilies and potatoes are not of Indian origin, right? And uh, chil chilies, potatoes, uh, pineapples, yeah, tomatoes, right? Yeah, these are not of Indian origin at all, right? And what are we talking about, right? Yeah, uh, many kinds of bananas are not of Indian origin and we don't even get them, right? So if you want to erase that, please erase that, right? Yeah, so uh, when we talk about culture, how does culture get influenced by another culture? Right? How did the writer get influenced by culture? Right? Now, all those things are already there when we're talking about Chaucer. Right? And uh, of course, you have uh, Chaucer's Troilus in Proceeding, which uh, is dedicated to govern. Right? So, you have this kind of appreciation uh, that Chaucer has for Gava, right? Though Gava is a different kind. Of a person who is writing, yeah, and what happens is that Gava is a very serious kind of man, right? And he also has what he call three different kinds of phases, and uh, or he has three long poems: Speculum uh, Meditantis, right? It's in French. Vox Clamitas is in Latin, and Confessio Am uh, Amantis is in English. Right? Yeah? And the, the last one, Confessio Amatis, is a kind uh, of a work that is compared with Chaucer. Right? Yeah? And, uh, yeah. So you have um, him using the deadly, uh, seven deadly sins as a kind of a metaphor, right? And that's the kind of organization, right? And uh, what Chaucer does is something that uh, Boccaccio does. In the Decameron, right? That is, he's actually talking about uh, people telling stories, right? Yeah. 
So that's of course Chaucer arranges it more complexly and that's why uh, people like Hudson would think that uh, Chaucer is a greater artist than uh, Gump, right? Yeah. So that's the question that you're talking about, right? And then what happens is he's talking about a man called Vat Titler, right? Uh, and his rebellion, right? And it's a criticism of the clergy, free, uh, and it's uh, very frequent and very severe, right? Uh, yeah. And the idea, of course, is a strong conservative kind of understanding of the world, right? And today we use that kind of a writing as what you call right-wing writing. Today you might call it right, right? Uh, because the right wing is about being conservative, right? Yeah, and uh, when you talk about the left, the, the left is actually trying to question the status quo or the conservative people and is trying to reformulate and remake society and change a lot of things which exist, right? So the people actually doing the work are the left people, right? The people who are on the left of center, right? Yeah, so. Uh, that's exactly what is interesting, right? Because uh, when we talk about who are these people, right? These are people who are marginalized. They are people who are historically wrong. These are people who don't have a stake in the in the mainstream of society, right? And what happens to the conservatives? The conservatives are people who are very happy with all that is there. They don't give any change at all, right? Yeah. And what they do is they are talking about. This is how we are, rightly or wrongly so, right? This is what we're doing, yeah? And that's all that they are trying to do and govern. Uh, and govern is one of these kind of very conservative people, right? Yeah, now, uh, uh, is Chaucer conservative or not conservative? That's very difficult to say, right? Yeah? And uh, the idea is, what does it mean to be a conservative, right? Conservative is to conserve society as it is. Right? Yeah? Uh, not to want any change to happen. Right? And uh, the tension between the idea of being conservative and the idea of being radical, right? Or, uh, yeah, is something that is constantly played out in literature. Right? So you have some people who are extremely conservative, right? And have still produced very, very interesting literature, right? That is, people like Chaucer, uh, people like Milton. People like uh, Tom Bunyan, right? Yeah, so they're ac actually, uh, you might not call them conservative because they're ultra right, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, so, so that's something else that you might like, yeah? Because, uh, and of course, Milton in that whole process actually glorifies what he's trying to uh, negate, right? When he writes the paradise lost, etc. Right? So you might like to think of all this uh, as a critical kind of judgment that we're looking at. Right? Now, uh, uh, then these uh, people called the Lollards are around the place. Right? Yeah, and the Lollards are kind of skeptical thinkers and are kind of people who are actually trying to reform the church, reform society, think about things and react. And one of the things that they do is you have Wycliffe, or Wycliffe, right? And he writes the Bible, which is a translation into English, right? So they're actually thinkers, 
and thinkers are not liked by society, right? So when you're talking about Wycliffe, it actually means that, well, of course, the idea of Wycliffe and the Lollards and all that is to reform the church, to make the church better than what it is, to go back to uh, a very simple kind of living, which is what the Bible preaches. Yeah. So we might call it a puritanical streak, if you like. Yeah. But uh, and that's what happens in the Puritan Church afterwards, right? At this point of time, you don't really have the Puritan Church emerging as it does uh, with people like Zwingli uh, and after Martin Luther and you have Calvin and all those kind of people, right? Yeah. So at this point of time, uh, you still have the idea of thinkers who are thinking about uh, the idea of what's going on, right? Yeah, his standpoint was that of a strong conservative and he had no more sympathy than Chaucer with the teachings of Wycliffe and his followers, the Lollards, right? Uh, in contrast with both Chaucer and Gower, who kept, uh, who were deep as, as were the individual differences, uh, were like poets of the court, stands a third writer on this age, William Langland, who was essentially a poet of the people, right? Yeah, so the idea is you have Chinua uh, Chibi writing this novel called Man of the People, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so the idea is a poet of the people, yeah, or the man himself, we know very little. He seems to have been a son of Franklin and he has been born in the neighborhood of Malvin and has lived a life of poverty and struggle. Of his character, however, we have a clear revelation in his work, the vision of William uh, concerning Piers, Piers the Plowman, an enormous allegorical poem which is in its final shape, runs into about 15,000 lines, right? Rambling, confused, and almost formless, right? Now, whether Hudson's statements are to be taken or not, unless we read the text, we can't justify them or not, right? Yeah. Uh, so he's saying that it's confused, it doesn't do a good job, etc. Yeah. But the question is, uh, to write allegory itself is very difficult, right? And to see allegory in somebody's written work is also not such an easy kind of reading task of uh, in uh, the idea of literary studies, right? So when we're talking about, uh, of course, what happens with Gawa and Chaucer is these still belong to the courtly class, right? And perhaps Langland is a person who's of uh, not such a uh, elite kind of a background, right? Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, so you might like to look at that kind of thing. So what? So when we are talking about literature, because this is an outline of English literature, we are talking about the different kind of people who go into making literature, right? And they get strengths of their own community, their own outlook, which is very important to the idea of uh, talking about or the context of literature is how they look at the world and nobody can look at the world from one point of view, right? Yeah, and of course, today, after Darwin and after the Victorian age, we're talking about determinism, right? So, we are determined to look at the world from certain kinds of perspectives which we, as human beings, have experienced, right? And that's why in literature, you're actually supposed to be exposed to a lot of different ideas 
a lot of different forms of being okay a lot of ideas which go against our brain right yeah and that's why uh, gay lesbian writing uh, uh, the third gender the fourth gender whatever you want to call them right all those things become important because what happens with that is we are actually confronting the conventional right and literature is actually uh, more of a anti establishment kind of business right of course we have the conservatives and the anti establishment other people are writing differently and pushing the boundaries of what it is to be human right yeah so uh, when you are talking about ps ps plowman we are talking about uh, a dream vision right so it's allegory it's got the idea the dream it's all those kind of things which are very interesting uh, as for right yeah so you use this form of a dream uh, that you get also with scipio's dream right uh, and yeah so so that's uh, that's in the roman times uh, so whether he had access to that kind of knowledge or not that's a question did he get it from the bible and did he get it from jacob's dream and then he gets read from joseph the dreamer right and the idea of what it is to be poor etc how much did the bible influence him right or the teaching of in the church influence him all those kind of questions uh, are also to be asked right uh, yeah uh, it is to this vision that uh, we have to turn if we would complete chaucer's picture of 14th century england by putting in the dark shadows langlands spirit is strikingly puritan and democratic yeah he was not indeed a wycliffe nor politically was he a revolutionary but he was profoundly moved by the misery of the masses he was an ardent champion of the cause and he sought to uh, bring english religion back to the simplicity and purity of the gospel truth it is an interesting commentary upon the character of the poem that written expressly for the people instead of for the court its language and style are far more rustic and old fashioned than those of chaucer's work right now uh, what is important and what is interesting is uh, we are talking about the language and when we study literature we have to pay very careful attention to language right we can't really talk about literature without talking about what kind of language that do people use right and we get over here this man called uh, langland who's using rustic language right which is important because this is saying that this is a kind of language that also exists along with chaucer's language right so you might have somebody who's french uh return an italian return and uh, the embellishments of his language are in uh, from a french and an italian perspective very enriching to the english language right yeah or that he has foreign influences are important because they are seen in the work and they make the literature uh, profound or great whatever that is right yeah so you have that's the second one right and then of course he gets back the idea of the anglo-saxon alliteration right so the rhyming is something that chaucer might get right from the french and from the italian right but what uh, langland does is 
he goes back to the idea of the Anglo-Saxon alliteration, right? Now, when we talked about the social history, we're talking about the Anglo-Saxons, we're talking about the Jutes, the Normans, the Celts, all those kind of people, right? And which we'll touch about, touch upon uh, in a in a bit. Uh, yeah, when we're talking about John Barber, right? Or uh, I don't know how that's pronounced, Barber, right? Yeah. So uh, what is interesting is we're talking about the idea that people keep going back or trying to go back to an English past, right? Yeah, which is a kind of a conservative or what you call a revivalist kind of mode, right? Like for instance, India wants to go back before the Mughals, uh, before, uh, before time, which we don't even know, right? Yeah, before uh, a man called uh, Buddha or Gautam the Buddha or whatever you want to call it, right? Some people want to go be before that, right? And build up a new India from there, right? Uh, yeah, uh, what happens to uh, all the Northeast states? Uh, were they a part of that India? I don't know, right? Yeah, but when you're talking about a revivalism, right? We are actually going back to uh, language, to culture, to text, right? To society before uh, a certain point of time, right? Yeah, and so the idea of revivalism is something that we see over here, right? Not necessarily a good idea, right? But when you do that, uh, Spencer does that again, right? Yeah, because uh, Spencer uses very Germanic forms, right? So you get, and he goes back to Chaucer, right? And in Chaucer you get they blink and he blink it and all those kind of things, right? Yeah, and Spencer tries to get that into his kind of language which he uses in the fairy queen yeah uh, so maybe you can you can look at those elements because uh, uh, Hopkins does that much later right and I'm sorry I'm taking you into all the history of very uh, present poets right and you have also a poet like Ted Hughes who goes in the remains to Emmett and all those kind of things he goes back to the past, right? He goes back and he's trying to build language out of minimum kind of words, right? Yeah, so the idea of uh, going back and how does one go back and what elements does one go back to is interesting because, uh, of course, we might think that it's a politically very uh, reductive kind of exercise, right? Yeah, because uh, I remember I read a paper on revivalism in Europeans, right? And that was bang after the Babri Masjid or the fall of the Babri Masjid, right? And uh, the, uh, a lot of my classmates reacted very badly to the word revivalism and they said, you can't use the word at all, right? This is a bad word to use. After 6th of December uh, 1992, please don't use the word, right? Because revivalism means just going back into chaos and anarchy and all those kind of things, right? And you can't, this is a word that is not acceptable, right? Yeah, but I said, I'm not using it in that word that way because I'm talking about uh, the idea of uh, reviving a Greek tradition where, which was female dominated, right? Yeah, and that's something that H.C. Baldry talks about when we are talking about uh, the Greek civilization, right? The Greek world, yeah? he's talking about the idea of uh, 
what we get in uh, Hippolytus, right? I think my paper is in Hippolytus, right? Uh, that is, uh, Euripides is Hippolytus, right? And Euripides has this chorus of women very distinctively done because when the northern people came in into the south of Greece, right? And they conquer it, right? Uh, they actually disrupt uh, these things which we might think about as myths. That is the idea of the Amazonians, right? They're supposed to be warrior women, right? Yeah, of course, our Amazonian is, a in English, Amazonian is a woman who's more like a, uh, a male than a female because the idea of the Amazonian women are the people who had uh, huge muscles, right? And had a lot of riding skills, right? Because they were women who, uh, who were, who used men only for procreation, right? Yeah? And that's all the utility that they had for men because, uh, and after that they would get them uh, uh, killed, right? Yeah? So they use them uh, for pro procreation, for the sexual act, and then get rid of them, right? So, Euripides goes back to that kind of past and he does something else. He has uh, the chorus of women in a different kind of Greece, right? And uh, Chaucer does the same, uh, not Chaucer, T.S. Eliot does the same in the 20th century, uh, trying to imitate uh, this man called uh, Euripides, right? So he also has a chorus of women in his murder in the cathedral, but the representation is not like Euripides at all, right? Yeah, the representation is a kind of a timid, frightened women, right? Yeah, and they're talking about, oh, we we are all feeling so scared. Okay, our archbishop is dead. They've killed our, they've come for the archbishop. They're killing the archbishop, and the archbishop is dead, and all those kind of things, right? So that's that's a very very sad kind of imitation of Euripides, right? Or even if you call it revivalism, that's a kind of a sad revivalism, right? Uh, yeah, so uh, one of the things that happens is they're using alliteration. That is, that is a kind of way they actually wrote English with a lot of alliteration, right? So that's what uh, uh, Langland is doing, right? And they've given an example over here, right? And another 14th century poet deserves passing mention a, the Scottish John Barber, who for a time was archdeacon of Aberdeen, right? Uh, and the real father of the Scottish poetry, right? Uh, he holds a certain place in literature. His fame, uh, his fame rests on his long poem, The Bruce, in which the deals, the great deals of Robert Bruce are recorded in spirited narrative, right? Yeah, so Robert Bruce is this kind of a leader of the Scottish people, right? King Bruce of Scotland, right? Yeah, that's the idea, right? So he's talking about, so he's writing, he's not quite English, and he's writing over there in English, right? And he's uh, Aberdeen and all that in Scotland, right? Yeah, and with this, uh, of course, uh, Hudson covers it in the next chapter. We are talking about the idea of the ballad, right? And you have uh, a lot of literary or stylistics people who are talking about the ballad 
belonging to feudal England, right? Now the ballad is a folk form, right? And uh, you have some sad stories which are sung about in ballads. I'll just look for one and you can hear it because uh, it's not uh, a very good idea to just talk about the ballad, right? Without uh, giving you a feel of it, right? Yeah, so we are talking about the ballad, right? And well, how do I get there? Just wait a while, I'll get you there in a second. Just wait a while. I'm sorry, I should have arranged this before.
to the place where she was dwelling. Somebody, right? 
and is talking about two lovers and it's very simple kind of music that you have right and that's when uh, so the idea of the feudal ballad is something that you keep coming across when you study poetry right so the ballad form is uh, uh, there are different kinds of ballads that you get right like for instance you'll get a ballad about a fisherman right a fisherman going out of sea and uh, getting lost etc etc right yeah so uh, that's uh, uh, and of course the ballad form has been imitated by a lot of poets right up to uh, WB Yeats right that is uh, the ballad of Father, Father Gilligan right so you have different kinds of ballads which are written right and the ballad form becomes an important kind of poetry form and if you actually want to learn uh, you actually want to get back to the age of Chaucer right uh, this is the kind of music that they use, right? It's just on two notes or three notes they play this, right? I will also give you the uh, another kind of music if I can find it, yeah? And that is uh, something called uh, the Gregorian chant. I'll just see if there is something available. Uh, this is one of these people is a Benedictine monk, so we'll you can get that also. Growing businesses need a hosting solution that is powerful yet easy to manage. Let's look.
so I think, uh, yep, yeah. I think by that we get a taste of two kinds of music which are something that play a big part in the influence of Chaucer, right? And in the influence of all these people in still a world that is not quite the Renaissance world, right? Yeah. And uh, these are rhythms which even now if you go to uh, the Canterbury Cathedral, you will get the Gregorian chant, right? In fact, I, I bought a cassette from the Canterbury Cathedral uh, on the Gregorian chant, right? Because uh, that's this two, it's just about two notes that they use, right? And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the way they, they operate. And of course, you and I might find that this is primitive music, right? But uh, that's uh, a long tradition and uh, people go back to this idea of the medieval because they want to listen to that kind of music, right? Because our, our music has become a different kind and a more complicated music, right? And of course, the secular music was also not very complicated. Yeah, so we, when you uh, listen to a ballad like Barbary Allen, right? Uh, of course, it's sung by a modern uh, singer called John Bears, right? Yeah, who's a contemporary or the girlfriend of uh, uh, this guy who gets a Nobel Prize. What's his name? Ah, how many roads? Yeah, how many roads will a man walk down, right? All that kind of thing. Yeah, anyhow, you, you find them out, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. So what happens is you uh, you get this idea of yes, yeah. Uh, right. Bob Dylan, yeah, correct, yeah, right, yeah. So you get the idea of music, right? And music is a very important uh, kind of yeah, blowing in the wind, yes. And many other songs that he has, right? The times are changing, all those kind of things, right? Uh, that's Bob Dylan, right? Of course, the sad thing is uh, the Prime Minister of India uses that, and times are changing. Bob Dylan is something else, right? And the uh, the political narrative of Bob Dylan and uh, our Prime Minister are two poles apart, right? Yep. Okay, fine. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah. Another another piece that you might like is uh, the Rose of Aberdeen, right? Yeah, so Aberdeen is in Scotland, right? And you have all these ballads, a lot of Scottish ballads which are around the place, right? And uh, the idea of the ballad is associated with the political formation of what you call the feudal uh, hierarchy, right? So when you talk about the sonnet, the sonnet actually comes in with a different kind of a, a cultural formation, right? It comes in with the idea of uh, the court music, etc. Yes, you want to say something, Bhavya? Go ahead. Yes, say. Yeah, I'm giving you a place. Say what you're saying. Yes. Yes, sir. I have read a few books about medieval music, set up in medieval music. Uh, in a time like that. So there is a mention of demons, wandering wandering demons. Wandering? They sing songs. Wandering demons. G L E E N A N. Gleeman. 
clean it. Right. Yeah. Even while reading Anglo-Saxon Anglo-Saxon yep. era, there is a mention of them. Yeah. And these people played music and sang songs and they told stories throughout the land. So can we also like draw some sort of a relation? Yeah, you you have the French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have the French troubadours, right? Yeah. So all those kind of influences uh, are something that is very important, especially when you talk about the medieval ages, right? Yeah. So you have uh, the wandering minstrels are a big kind of a uh, a part to that, right? And that tradition may have suffered in some ways, but I don't know if it has absolutely, right? Yeah. Uh, if you see Bertolucci's Romeo and Juliet, Bertolucci's no, uh, Zeffirelli's, yeah, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, uh, yeah, you have this person who sings, a rose is born and then it fell, oh, 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 yeah, and that's by Nino Rota, right? If you want to play it out for you, right? Yeah, thanks for saying that because I think you must uh, listen to it. A time for us, that's the name of the piece. Uh, and that's important because, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, just listen to it.
the uh, the piece from this really oh ek corona ke baad sab kuch kitna badal gaya hai na ha the the music is the same but this is the uh, so kindly go and watch nino rota's romeo juliet right this is what is the youth and he's actually singing at the wedding i'm sorry i can't put it up on uh, the screen here yeah. So you, I think you can access it on the YouTube, right? Yeah. So you can get the idea of 
the medieval kind of way of going about because that's how Shakespeare actually conceives Romeo and Juliet, right? At one level you have medievalism and the other level you have modernism and the tension between the two is something that you see over there, right? Which is what you call, uh, what we're actually doing when we're talking about the Renaissance, right? Yeah? Now, uh, so you have uh, this man who's a Scotsman who's writing about uh, uh, the Bruce, right? And he's actually talking about uh, uh, Robert Bruce, right? And uh, he's giving you a different kind of narrative, right? So you have Bat Titler, you have the, the idea of what we're going to do, more theater, right? Yeah, uh, Manoli is more theater, right? You have all these kind of things which are uh, a counter narrative to the main narrative, right? And that's why it's important that we, as when we're studying this age, we took, talk about Chaucer at one end, right? Where you get songs like A Time for Us. You'll also get the Gregorian chant, chant which I played for you, right? Yeah, and you'll also get this kind of traditional uh, folk music which has this ballad structure to it, right? Uh, and uh, so the idea is you're listening to the song and you're listening to the music and you get sucked in, right? Uh, yeah, so that that's so the idea of plants, roses, uh, the idea of decay, the idea of death, right? Even in this love song, which is sung in Romeo and Juliet uh, in the party, right? Yeah. Uh, before Romeo and Juliet actually, uh, when Romeo and Juliet actually meet, right? Yeah, he's all talking about love and death, right? Yeah, so he's saying, What is the youth? And uh, everything is going to fade, the youth is going to fade, uh, uh, the beauty is going to fade, everything is going to go away, right? Yeah, so uh, that's what the Middle Ages all are about, right? Because death, the plague, all these things are realities for them, right? Okay, uh, many people in India can't put up with the lockdown, right? But uh, the English, uh, the Europeans had to put out, put up with a lot of this for a lot of time, right? Yeah, and it, it meant, of course, in India, our data is probably not shown in all parts of India, right? Yeah, and uh, somebody was telling me the other day that uh, there is some uh, Guardian or one of these, the New Yorker, yeah, I think it's the New Yorker, right? Yeah, which has actually covered Baroda and talked about how many people are dying in Baroda and how the government and uh, the hospitals are covering up the deaths due to COVID-19, COVID right? Yeah, so I think uh, that's something that the medieval age couldn't do, right? Yeah, they couldn't cover up, right? And a lot of people actually face death, right? So uh, when you're talking about the plague, the plague is not something that's happening far away, right? The plague actually means a lot of your the lot of people you know are going to die, right? So when you're talking about death, death is a very important element of uh, poetry, right? And of course you have meditation on death, okay? And you have the seven deadly sins. All those kind of things are something that is a, a constant that you're confronted with, right? Whether you go to church, They'll talk about death, right? And the the songs like Barbary Allen and all those kind of things are talking about love and death, right? Yeah. So uh, this is the staple of the imagination, and of course the allegory of the rose. Whether you have it in uh, the song that we play in Barbary Allen, right? 
is talking about the thistle growing and the roads growing around the thistle and these people are united in death. As a, okay, that's the allegory that you have, right? Yeah. So the allegorical is an important kind of imaginative force that you have in the poetry that is taking place at this point of time. Yeah. Uh, would you like to stop or would you like to go on? Right. Yeah, I think it's already uh, 12.38, right? So uh, I have about two or three minutes more. Or uh, is it time up? Yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah, so I'll just finish a little bit because I think I have two minutes more. Yeah, so when we're talking about this, we're also talking about the idea of uh, 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 some other, yeah, if you want to make a statement, please say it because I'll have to waste some time in opening the chat box, etc. Right? Yeah, what, what, is the what is the position? Yeah, I've got time till 12.50. Yeah, thank you. Right? Yeah, so... Uh, uh, we are talking about prose writing. Wycliffe's Bible is the most interesting example of various artless English and his controversial pamphlets help to show the capabilities of the vernacular at a time when Latin had deemed the only, uh, was deemed the only fitting vehicle of logical discussion. But the great prose works of the period uh, is the singular volume which goes by the title of uh, The Travels of Sir John uh, Modaway, right? According to the specific statement of the preface, this Modaway was born in St. Albans and set out on his journey in 1322 and his books purport to give a circumstantial account of what he had seen and heard during many years of wanderings in the Holy Land and the Far East. It is now established, however, that no such person as the alleged author ever existed and the work is a translation from the French of a certain Jean 